0: All right, it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today?
1: Jeff, didn't you say we're off for the last th- Thanksgiving? What's up with this? Uh,
0: yeah, but I read this really great article. I invited uh, the author to come on and talk about it with us, so I said, what the heck?
1: <laughs> oh, good. And So it's this will be, I'm sure this will be a great interview. Uh, Tyler had already been on our show Previously, we talked about the inner conservatism so um, we just sort of talk about, uh, well, you'll see. Absolutely. I can't wait. All right. Now we
0: welcome our guest, Tyler Sick, Assistant Professor of Political Science and History at the University of Pikeville and Founding Editor and Chairman of the Board of Directors at the Vital Center. Tyler, thank you for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. So, uh, welcome back, obviously, for for those loyal listeners that you've you've seen Tyler on the show before. Uh, Today we're bringing him back. He's got this great project he's working on, uh, which put out their fall issue, uh, the Vital Center. And uh, I really want to talk to you about that, what you're working on there, and uh, and the article that you published this month. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what got you, like what what inspired you to start this project?
2: Right, so I think it, it it began, it kind of emerged from conversations I was having with um, friends, fellow um, professors, or at the time, graduate students, um, about the direction the country was taking, but in particular, sort of the intellectual world, the part of the country was taking, which was it towards the extremes and away from what we consider to be kind of the liberal center, and we mean liberal in the, the broad sense, believing in natural rights, believing in a limited government, believing government exists to take care of people, that kind of um, liberal. However, and there's a lot of disagreements about what that means, what it means to preserve rights, what it means um, for government to take care of people, how government should take care of people. But we thought it would be good to create a venue for those disagreements to be aired. Um, and in the end hopefully be able to forge a kind of coalition of um thinkers and um other people who were interested in reviving that kind of politics that way of thinking about so,
0: politics and society and culture so like kind of bringing back i don't know debate about issues like yeah. reason, reasoned, reasoned thought about issues as opposed to like fiery well, passions and emotions and arguments
2: Right, yeah, well, we reason thought about issues around sort of a particular, in a particular window. Um, the attempts to try and make that way of thinking much more vibrant. But liberalism, we think, is really under attack. Centrism is really under attack. The idea that politics should be more in the middle. Um, and the people who occupy those places, the liberals and the centrists, their typical response is, well it's the people's fault, for, or it's the nationalists' fault, or it's the socialist fault, or whoever, or it's not our fault. Um, and there's really nothing we're doing wrong. And we thought, well, no, there there are things that probably could be done better, things we need to rethink for a, a new age. Um, and we need a publication where we can talk about those things, or we can debate those things.
1: Yeah, I. Mean- so you you've mentioned just the word liberal many times, and you kind of went into how you might, describe it but could you go more into that because um for, just from my experience in politics like liberal has a, is a very specific connotation of usually it's oh the liberal democrats or right. you know maybe it's a rhino republican who's got these liberal yeah. but I, I think you you're you were teasing at it it's much different than that and like there's maybe the broader context to it or how would you kind of frame it
2: Right, yeah. So th- I mean, this is, as a tell my students, I said there's liberal in the sense that Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi are liberals. Um, and that means maybe you like a more interventionist state um, in the economics. You'd like protections for minorities um, and so on and so forth. Um, and then there's liberal in the sense in which Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Abraham Lincoln are liberal, um, the sense in which all of America is kind of a liberal project. Um, and that that means the idea that we as humans, um, nobody is born with the right to rule somebody else. And because of that, government has an obligation to protect the rights and the dignity of individuals. Um, and it's an, it's an ideology that emerged um, in the 1700s, though it has roots much deeper than that, going all the way back to Rome. But that's the general idea. The government has some responsibility to protect the rights of people. So, what that means to protect the rights of people, I mean, you can take the Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi approach and say, you know, it means a big government that does certain things, or you could take a a much more typically conservative approach where it's limited government, it's a free market economy, so on.
0: So, my question would be actually, is who are you protecting them from? Ah, Oh, who who is the government? In in You know, if the government has the right to protect the citizens, from what? Yeah, well, I think that's
2: uh, a fair question. And depending on what sort of liberal you're asking, you're going to get a pretty different answer. Um, I think the the broad answer is tyranny of any kind. Um, Political tyranny is the obvious one. The government could be protecting you from the government. Um, And it does that by limiting its powers. Um, There are certain things that the United States government is not allowed to do, um, and that is a product of liberal political thought, that government should be restrained. Um, Starting in the 1800s, but it would not have been news to people like Thomas Jefferson, there's also a push for government to play a part, um, protecting individuals from private tyranny, um, from companies or... um, Aristocrats or whoever it is that's taken power, and they're not taking power through the government. So there's this balancing act. But, it, and as I said, depending on what sort of liberal you ask, Joe. But for this, way, Joe Biden and Mitt Romney would probably give drastically different answers to this question. But both of them would probably be broadly liberal.
0: I, I think that, I mean, if you're a citizen, I think what you should be wanting your government to protect you from is foreign power. Yeah. Concentrated power and majority rule, yeah, or or not, maybe not majority rule per se, but simple majority rule.
2: Well, and that's the best. That's way- more.
0: That's what tyranny is. In yeah. in, 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 in when it's fifty one percent, it's tyranny. When it's seventy percent, maybe it's we're all a cooperation.
2: Right. Well, I think that the word you use there that's just key is concentrated power. Yes, And that concentrated power could be in the hands of the majority. It could be in the hands of five people um, who are a sort of tyrannical committee. It could be in the hands of the government. It could be in the hands of a couple of companies. Concentrated power. And that's what liberalism as a broad political ideology rebels against. The idea that, and because you have to think that where the, Thought it begins with is that no human has the right to rule over another human, and so you can't have concentrations of power, which inevitably mean that one group or one collection or a couple individuals are ruling over other people in a way that is not okay.
0: Yeah, I think- and I think
1: that's a key bit with like that fourth part of the um the principles is sort of yeah you're going to endorse these ideas of civility, moderation, openness, curiosity, and good humor. And that's um, I think you could say like in a certain sense, like, you know, Mitt Romney en- embodies a lot of that, the moderation, uh, sometimes good humor, I guess, his, his most recent book or the, the book that was written about him seems to go after more people and you'd want more, a little more charity on that part. But I really think it is sort of not trying to um, to crush people, you know, like that is, you know, like Jeffrey, you were saying, like, once you're in control and you're a majority, um, the liberalism aspect of that is having the moderation to not just yeah. impose your will on everyone.
0: Well, And we got away from that mm-hmm. significantly, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, and it's, it's an interesting thing. This
2: isn't actually an easy thing that we're asking of people. I think the, gen, the natural human inclination is to try and impose Absolutely. your will on other people. Because we all think we know what's best. <laughs> and people who really don't think that, I think, are a little bit fooling themselves. We all think we do. Um, and the, sort of the liberal project, the modern project, it asks us to admit that we don't know what's best,
0: or at least we can't know for sure. And so yeah. it's wrong
2: for us to impose our views on other people.
0: And and that kind of goes in, and you write this in your statements of principles, and that idea of like, there are natural, there is a natural law to the world. You know, yeah. and they're natural rights that we all, like you said, no no human should rule over another one. Um, and so, and I think that's something that people just, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of lost uh, a little bit. And you talk about it, I think, in your, your article as well about like the loss of virtue, you know, there's, you know, without those things, you kind of forget that kind of equal. We're, you know, the circumstances of our lives dictate where we end up, but we kind of all start in the same place right yeah and it's 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 not this
2: is always an uphill battle and it's not clear to me we've ever done it remarkably well but it requires a certain way of thinking not on just the part of the government but on the part of everybody where you respect other people's opinions and other people's rights and it's not easy i often joke that everybody starts to get a little bit snooty when they have to wait in a line at a walmart um, they suddenly wish they could skip ahead. And it's little things. It doesn't even have to be about opinions. You may start to think you're better than other people. And of course, nobody really is.
0: Um, not in a deep, deep sense. Yeah, and, and we kind of, that that morality in the United States, in a lot of ways, has been taught into the culture through religion. Yeah. And yeah. over the last 50 or 60 years, religion has l- lost its... Right. Rip in America. You know, I would say that religion in a lot of ways has um lost its way with the kind yep. of the movement of the churches. You had the big churches in the eighties and whatnot. Yep. There was a lot of scams. It, it turned off a lot of people. It became more about the church yep. and less about God. Um and and so with that kind of weakening moral fiber, now yep. you get a bunch of people that think they know everything. You know, that they forget that they are uh followers right. you know not all just leaders
2: well and on your point about the church the church have become a lot about politics mm.
0: well religion has a
2: lot to do say about politics i think um but at the end of the day you ought not be going to church to hear about why the republicans arrived or the democrats arrived or anything like that it's it's not what it's supposed to be about you shouldn't go to a church because it's the conservative church or that's the liberal church um and I think that has done a lot of damage to politics. It's made religion part of this partisan mess that sort of grips the whole country. Um, and as you say, it turns people away. There's been a serious decline in religion. And what I find even more decline, I mean, I'm religious and I think religion is important, but, but but in some ways it's more alarming to me that the decline in religion is um, a lack of belief in anything bigger than humans. Um, a lack of anything remotely spiritual in modern society that's just been chased away it's all materialism it's all science and all that kind of thing and i think morality is a hard thing virtues is a hard thing to build up and at the end of the day the best
0: any of us can do is try to be comfortable uh-huh. yes we we have that want and desire to be comfortable don't we? Right,
2: well there's nothing wrong with being comfortable either. i I don't think not an aesthetic I, I don't think we should all be monks or anything but that shouldn't be the end goal of humanity and i think for a lot of people that's become the end that's the best we can do it's all humans are really made for yeah
1: i think you make a great point that, that churches actually are very political because they inculcate virtues and virtues are key to yeah. republic surviving and if you Don't inculcate those virtues you're not going to have the societies you know um going on but but it's it's not the partisan politics that they've still become we've still become them become accustomed to
2: it's a kind of politics that's bigger than parties i think it's more important Mm -hmm. than parties parties and partisanship and ideologies are really important i mean that's part of what i study i think that they serve an important role in certain ways um but the churches serve a more important role. Like you say. it's to build virtue. It's to actually sustain the culture in which those parties can survive and work. Um, and when the church strays from its real mission, the sort of deepest political mission, which is to create a good world from which people can live, a good framework in which people can live, um, it loses the plot a little bit. And I think the rest of politics is inclined to follow suit. And it's not new that the church has done is doing these things either. I guess I should say sometimes the churches do better, and sometimes they do <laughs> worse <laughs> when it comes to fulfilling this political mission. That um, they're certainly most of them aren't doing um, a very good job. I don't think.
0: Yeah. Well, I it it becomes hard. You you're you're kind of when you're in the middle of you know, what What would you call what we're in, right? Like, I mean, so your article, let's, let's get into that, keeping the Republic, right? Yeah. So keeping keeping the Republic means there is some feasible possibility in your lifetime that we don't have it. You know, if you're writing about keeping it, you must, I mean, you must think that it is going away at some point, potentially, if we don't All make right. some changes, maybe not a guarantee, but like more of a warning or a, um. Yeah. you know, I don't know what, what to call it, but, and and if you're in the church and you're of a person of faith, you know, like you may not know what to do because government no. isn't your expertise and you're just trying no. to hold on to everything that you know and trying to right. help and whatnot. So, you know. First, let's let, How in danger is our republic? Um, well, as I say in the article, I think it's, um, it's a little
2: dubious if it even is a republic anymore, um, probably truthfully it really probably is more democracy but that's a fine thing I I try to say that doesn't have to be a bad thing as long as we keep some republican bits um but how in danger is our democratic republic I think um pretty in danger um nobody agrees there's no foundation to the regime I don't think we're particularly virtuous regime um so I I don't feel very hopeful for its future, but I should say, and this is something I think anybody who studies history figures out, is nothing on earth really lasts forever. And so you're always, if you're trying to preserve a regime, you're always just trying to beat out the clock best you can. Um, And I think we should try to be, you know, we we should try to do our best to preserve it, Um, but one day it will almost certainly go away. but that moment doesn't have to be within our lifetimes. It doesn't have to be within our kids' lifetimes. And that's always kind of the mission, to keep freedom alive, to keep democracy alive as best we can, knowing that it's a very easy
0: thing to, to kill. So, a lot in there I want to get to. Okay, so first thing is we can't just accept that we're a democracy in my opinion. And, and you know, I, I think that you say that, yes, it's it's okay to be a democracy as long as we keep some Republican bits. Mm-hmm. I think the Republican bits are the most important. You know, mm-hmm. you you have to have a framework or structure, a set of abstract rules, right, but, in place to to allow people to have their voices heard, to allow because democracy is about power for the people. And no. if you don't have some sort of structure um, in place, then people are going to get mobbed out one way or the other. Um, yeah. that are, you know, and so and if my first my first you know, critique or you know, just thing that i I talk about with people all the time is like, don't say democracy, Say Democratic Republic. you know, like right. make sure that you're saying those two words together because we're yeah. we're not we are not a democracy. And for the first hundred plus years, when you read, you know, people in our government, whether when they're in Congress or in the right. presidency, they wrote about being a republican they did not write about you know democracy this this is relatively new in our history um and i think that you know because even andrew jackson the the first democrat the first one to bring democracy he still, he he valued republican virtue and that was the idea of people governing themselves and that's kind of what you guys are doing at the you know with liberal democracy if no one should be able to rule right. another person
2: Right. Well, in liberal democracy, um I'm glad you brought up this word I haven't. Liberalism and republicanism go, go together rather well. Like yes. they require you to have they require a level of virtue, a level of self-respect for other people. They require political involvement, they require rights, they require restrained governments. So the term liberal democracy, which gets a lot of flack on the far left and the far right, is really, I think, another way of saying something like democratic um republic it's a democracy with strings attached that make it (laughs) a good thing because as you say, democracy doesn't have to be a good thing it could be something pretty revolting um well um victor orban in hungary likes to call what he's building an illiberal democracy where the majority rules there aren't as many rights you know it's it moves away from a lot of the republican elements that make america so good um and I do think you are right. I mean, it isn't to say that the people should rule absolutely is not a good thing. And on a practical level, I don't think a national government can be truly democratic. It's too far from the people. And so part of um, reviving um, to having a healthy democracy, if you want the people to rule, is actually local government where people can rule something more uh, roman style or more greek style or something like those lines
0: i agree and and john and i that's kind of our mission at the madisonians is like you know you gotta if you really want to make some change in the world you know i think you tweeted about this the other day about like a, a, a third party presidential candidates like no you really yeah. need to start from the ground up you know you need to start in your communities local government i mean at at its core that's what republicanism is right yeah. it's small groups is working inside of a small group to build a bigger group, to build yeah. another group. It's it's a communication mechanism. You know, like it's all these different things.
2: Yeah, there's a tendency in the United States to focus very much on the national. Um, where that comes from, it begins in all kinds of places. and We don't have to get into that today. Um, Cause it's sort of a different topic, but it, it does undermine kind of democracy and Republican virtue and that kind of thing. I think this emphasis on everything national. Um, and yeah, I was thinking the other day, the third party has always run people for president. Um, And I rarely run anybody for city council or for state representative. Um, And one of the reasons though, and it isn't just the third party's fault, is that a lot of states won't give you ballot access unless you have a viable presidential candidate, which is insane. Um, (laughs) Did did the anti-Mason party in the United States, which did quite well at the local and regional level, ever compete in a presidential election? No, not really. And that they shouldn't have had to. They were they did the job they needed wanted to do at the state and local level. Um, so it goes both ways. In some cases, it's an entrenched establishment preventing things from being localized. And in some cases, it's the people themselves nationalizing in their heads and not localizing.
0: Well, I'm so I have a point I want to bring up on that, but I'm gonna I want to ask you the question before I get into it. And John, did you did you have a question for him? You wanted to go first.
1: Yeah, so thinking about democracy, I think you make the point that it's about equals. Um, And I think, you know, in the Declaration of Independence, it talks about uh, all men are created equal. So there, there is kind of that, even though it's a Republican structure, there is this idea of equality. Um, But I think where it gets muddied and where there's the the lack of discourse, honestly, is like, what is, what is equality? Like, I, I mean, I can think of like my son, like, he and I have the first name. So we're equal in that respect. But He's also much much younger than I so we're not equal in that respect and then you know we're we're both men so we're we're equal in that way but um uh you know he's a child and I'm a father so we're not equal so like I think there's a lot of a muddying around that in terms of you know okay. both pe- both people both sides if you say we'll say oh we're about equality but I think um people have different ideas about that and do you do you sense that that's part of where the breakdown is we we don't have a common conception of where the where equality as, as it was decided or thought about at the founding is and where it's, we've moved from that?
2: I don't know if it's, well, I'll say a little bit about what I think equality means in, in the American context, and then I think where, where it's gone today. But um, I mean, there are some ways I think in which we're just, man- people are manifestly unequal. LeBron James mm-hmm. is manifestly better at basketball than I am. I haven't shot a basketball in years, and he just is. There's just, no one could doubt this. Um, there are people who are clearly much smarter than other people. And that that's just how it is, too. There's people who are more hardworking than other people. There are people who are nicer than other people. And so some of these things are even choices um, that make people unequal to one another. Um, but there's a deeper sense in which people are equal. And um, that's they're all humans. They all have souls. And they all have really the potential to be good or bad. Um, there's something in them that could move them in a particular direction. The, um, the Catholic political philosopher, um, Jacques Martin, I might not be saying that exactly right, but um, he, he argues that um, this is essentially what makes people people, that we have free will and that our lives are kind of up to our own determination and that nobody really um should have the power to dominate us to decide how we should live how we should be good how we should be bad and even if they did try they really couldn't it's still largely a choice um and so with that respect we're all equal and that's the same respect the founding fathers thought thomas jefferson has a great quote i can only paraphrase because i'm bad at memorizing quotes but um, he says, you know, mankind are not born like horses with saddles on their backs and a favored view, booted and spurred to ride them by the grace of God. Some people are not just born to be kings and other people born to be servants. That isn't how it works. So in this deep sense, we're all equal. Now, I think in some ways we don't misunderstand equality so much today. It's just that there are different claims being made equality. Um, And not everybody acknowledges other people's claims. Um, They don't acknowledge that somebody may be being treated unequally or unfairly. Um, And I think that's where the real, and you get it on both sides. Um, The rural working class people think they have been left behind and they've been treated unequally. Um, Inner city Black people think they've been treated unequally and been left behind. Um, and neither one of them is really paying a great deal of attention to the other one's claims. But it isn't some acknowledgement that the inequality is unequal. It's just kind of an ignorance maybe, or a lack of understanding for the other person's needs. Um, And then there are some people who sort of just really wish, I think, to replace the term equality with equity. And this is where you do get a kind of difference where people are not equal the goal is not to make everybody sort of equally treated, but to treat some people who deserve it better than others, and they deserve it because the argument usually goes because they've been mistreated and so on. Um, but uh, the the, the old fashioned liberal argument that Thomas Jefferson would make is that just because you've been mistreated doesn't mean you get special treatment. Now, necessarily, um, there may be circumstances where you do, but. Um, goal is not to make society equitable but to make society equal so in that sense there is sometimes a disagreement but i don't think that is a a common theme um i don't think most people actually talk in the language of equity that's something that happens in universities but not among the average voter
1: It gets passed around but i i do like this idea of of sort of the potential to be good because that kind of jives with what um you talk about to tokeville saying with equality and families where the father is equal to the son um like again the equal kind of indignity but also the equal and sort of the father really can't make the son do anything he can he can provide opportunities you know he could provide education as you talk about later that's important but he he can't make his son become a good citizen the son you know uh, or daughter you know uh, has to take that on on upon themselves and that's where that formation is key and the training in the family but it you know. um, you know you're you're not going to force your child to do anything really
2: right well in Texas, that's what makes an egalitarian society a society where people are equal or so beautifully. so back in the day when he was a kid before he when his parents were kids and so on cuz he he was from france in the 1700s um or the early 1800s um you know the family was not very egalitarian you had a dad and he ruled the family like a tyrant and he said, but that isn't actually what's natural. This was something we had created over time. that had been built up through tradition and through custom. And it was kind of a farce, because of course the son is not always at the whim of his father, or the daughter is not always at the whim of their dad. They have free will, they have the ability to do things for themselves. And so this new equal society um, is a lot more natural. And it's actually, he says, it's a lot more loving when you're not at the mercy of your dad for everything, you can start to love him a lot more, says Tocqueville. Um, When the wife is not totally controlled by her husband, she can start to love her husband a lot more. And genuine affection, which was sort of cut out of the family for the sake of maintaining a, this very hierarchical system, um, can begin to exist. So he says there's society an egalitarian society just destroys lots of customs, but what's left behind is often a lot more beautiful to live in.
0: Yeah, I uh, I love this part of your article, by the way. And I actually, I, I haven't read Democracy in America. I ordered it and I got it delivered today. So I'm going to start that. Huge, soon. <laughs> huge book, but it's yeah. just
2: a full of stuff like this. Um, but
0: <laughs> it, it made me think because my twins are seven right now and 7 years old is basically the entrance to the age of reason right and i was wow. just having this conversation with my wife um you know when they go through and we john and i have talked about this on the show when kids go through transition periods where yeah. they they get they now have more power than they had before they have more awareness than they have before no. and they struggle at how to handle that power and, and as a parent you kind of struggle at how to guide them and so yeah. they're they're just moving into the age of reason and i've been teaching them to do a whole bunch of things by themselves uh, laundry uh dishes and all this stuff and my wife my wife is a doer right she just right. wants to get things done okay right. and so she's you know she's trying to teach and then she's like a little frustrated she's like you know what i'll just take care of it you're not ready yet and and i was trying to tell her i'm like they're 100% ready like they can they can understand everything that you're saying maybe they don't communicate it back just right yet But just be patient with them, work through it and let them make their mistakes, because this is the time that you want them making mistakes because their power is it's grand, but it's not so grand that it's life altering yet. in a lot of ways. You know, Mm -hmm.
2: they're not really totally the age of reason has begun, but they won't be totally out from under you until 18, 19, 21. So this is you're right. This is the perfect time in which they can learn how to be people. Well, much smaller repercussions, if that makes sense.
0: Well, so what I would say is the age of reason is basically between like 7 and 13, and then like 13 oh. is kind of enlightenment, right? So oh, the age I, see. Of
2: reason, I see. Okay, Yeah. The the
0: age of reason is the period of time where you learn how to reason. You have the capability, yeah. and you need your right. parents there to guide you through reasoning properly. Otherwise, you might reason a little too selfishly, right? right. It, 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 your parents are kind of the reflection yeah. of society. And then you get to 13, and now you hit enlightenment, and you're able to look back and you go, oh, I get it now. Like, I'm doing the right things, but now I understand why to do the right things. And you just well, and when it you kind think- of all comes together.
2: No, I'm, just, I'm slightly joking. But it's, not,
0: it's actually 13-year-olds do start to often think
2: they know everything.
0: But <laughs> Well, I mean, I think everyone always thinks they know everything. You no, I of, think it's true. At the top. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah.
2: Well, th- the age of enlightenment is when you you start to really know i think the difference between good and evil um and you start to think that you know entirely what is good and what is evil yes. um, which is why the the beginning of the bible i think is so beautiful um because it is it's a story about adam and eve but it's actually really a story about every human life through all of history this is just something we've lived through um, we eat of the tree of good and evil and then we think we know it all. Um, and it turns out we don't, but, um, <laughs> um, but we, we live most of our lives thinking we do and having to constantly remind ourselves that we don't.
0: Yeah. And so the, you've got the, the age of reason in there. I want to go back to what you were talking about with John with uh, equality. So, and you mentioned LeBron James and LeBron James would dominate me in a one-on-one basketball game. We are unequal in that aspect but i bet you i would dominate him in like i don't know a game of jeopardy you know his especially with his history questions right so like we may be unequal in one part but we may be and so and i unequal in a different part but we balance and therefore are equal you know equality is not necessarily like being good at everything yeah. i think each person has the potential to be good at something and that's why yeah. A Republican society with a capitalist uh, framework allows value to be assessed through hard right. work. And and that allows each person to use what value they have to build society stronger.
2: Yeah, well, I think this is something we, we've lost a sense of, is that everybody has something to contribute to society. Um, we have to forget that. I think we even more often forget the follow-up, which is that everybody should be contributing something to society. Yes. Um Tocqueville talks about this. I mean to Tocqueville, I I I hope I make clear loves democracy. But like anybody um who he understands the problems with the things he loves and he wants to fix them. Um, And he he's very, very concerned um Alexis de Tocqueville that um people will turn inwards. They'll only care about themselves and he doesn't just mean individualism he actually very interestingly says they only care about their family unit he said they won't care about the rest of society they'll just live in their little family unit and they won't be part of anything bigger Um, and that's always the, the the risk I think you run in an egalitarian society especially when you build families you make possible families which are so beautiful and so wonderful um getting out of that unit is not always as pleasant to go to the school board meeting and engage in the nightmare that is public debate or that so so often is public debate is kind of hard um and that must that might not be the best way everybody can contribute either but everybody does have something they contribute everybody has to contribute it isn't some it'll, democracy liberal democracy democratic republics they only work if everybody pulls their own way and everybody has some weight they need to be pulling and it could be in their job it could be in volunteer time it's impossible to say what it is for each person but
0: well i mean we are a self-governing republic we have rights and yeah. as i tell my children if you have rights that means you have responsibilities yeah and, well, and... i think you'll no, go ahead no go ahead
2: well i was gonna say i think the myth is that everybody voting is the only contribution we need to make but um and voting's important i don't want to downplay voting i think voting's a good thing to do i think everybody should vote but it's just kind of the least we can do and we, most people should be doing more than the least well, would anybody be a good parent if they were doing the least they could for their kids at the least they reasonably could do for their children no
0: on last week's show uh i proposed that people that don't vote in a primary, should not vote in a general election. I'm not making this a law or a rule. I'm no. just saying if you're a citizen and you want to be a good steward of your responsibilities, yeah. you should not vote in a general election if you didn't take the time to vet the candidates during the primary and yeah. vote in a primary election. Because well, it's not wrong. its not your voice at that point. It's not your choice. You're voting the party's choice at that point because you had yeah. no say in it. Well, and I think
2: to get it, even – this is maybe getting off track, but um, – a lot of states don't have open primaries. Um, it's I think that's a disaster, too, because nobody should have to affiliate with a political party to have a voice in who they're going to vote for in the general election. Um, I just think that's unreasonable.
0: Well, um, and I'll pose this question and then we'll move on because I don't want to sidetrack us too much. But is that against the Constitution? Because I was reading through that and I found a section, I don't have it highlighted right now, that I was thinking, you know what? I think it might be against the Constitution to keep somebody out of a primary race.
2: I don't know if it's unconstitutional. I don't want to say it is. But there, I think that you could make it interesting. It may be torturous, but it would be interesting. And it may be true. Um, I really just have a I don't know, um, argument that it denies people Republican government. I, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> which the constitute the all states can do whatever they want in how they structure their government, except there's one criteria Republican. Which says, that it has to be a Republican form of government.
0: Absolutely.
2: Um, and you could argue that closed primaries are not Republican.
0: They are not Republican at all. Um. And so, in, in, you know, we're going to get, I'm going to sidetrack this guy right here. Hold on. John Bigging, uh Bingham so he wrote the 14th amendment okay mm-hmm. and his first like attack of slavery or the fugitive slave act i can't remember it's it's fresh but it's muddled right now in my mind i don't have notes is was about that part of the the guarantee clause of the constitution that it was a republican government it was it was during the Kansas Nebraska act but it is interesting that you kind of had the same argument here um I'll have to. I gotta. I gotta look into this constitutional thing on the open primary. Yeah, I know
2: <laughs> you have kind of interested. I know another one. I actually think is. I don't think um the Supreme Court ruled along these lines that you couldn't have geographic representation in states, um which I also actually think is anti-republican. though the Supreme Court argued the opposite. But this is a whole other. Now I'm opening a whole other. Game yeah. Form, so. So-
0: so let's get back to the article. So, so
1: speaking of elections, and, and, and all that, we talk about virtue leading us to governing ourselves. Like, how would you kind of define governing ourselves? Because is, is it, you, you know, you said um, showing up to vote is the least you could do, and I think kind of your the the follow on that. well, because you, you have to like actually govern yourself and be a responsible citizen. Like, how would you? How could someone do that in a day to day way in, a, in a, a practical Roman way, if you might?
2: Well, it would it would look different for different people, probably, because different people have different skills. And part of self-governing, I think, is learning. um, And self-governing, I mean, is governing you as an individual. Mm -hmm. Um, It's learning what you're good at and what you're not good at and what you should be concentrating on and things like that. Um, I um, am really terrible at math. That's never going to be how I give back to society. And it's probably a good thing. I know that. (laughs) <laughs> um, so that's part of it, but that that that's that's a pretty basic thing. I mean, not everybody figures it, things out, but there are things we all can do. That said, um, we all can be respectful of other people and their opinions. We can all try to be involved in our community in whatever way we think we're best suited for. We can all try to um, be responsible. Follow politics. It's a tedious thing. I, I mean, I teach political science, and I think following politics can be tedious. Um, but follow politics so you can be an informed voter, so you can be a thoughtful voter. Um, vote for people. I don't think people really should vote for parties. I think that's bad citizenship. Um, it's a kind of in it, it's, its in its own way not being an informed voter. Um, but the, the first one I mentioned, I think is the biggest, the first two I mentioned, being involved in your community, being compassionate with others. I, I think I say this in the article, but the, the biggest way any of us can give back, the biggest way any of us can sustain the republic is to be active, generous, thoughtful, kind people in the communities in which we live. That doesn't mean Twitter. That doesn't mean Facebook. That means where you actually are physically. Um That's the most important thing any of us can do in keeping our
1: country going, I think. Someone uh, was describing compassion and it's like, it's, it's, you know, sympathy is when you're on a bus and you see a poor child in the street and say, oh, that's so terrible. And then compassion is when you actually like help the poor child as much as you can. And like that, that's truly like that's getting involved. I think so much of what we see on social media is just sympathy of like, oh, can you believe how bad things are? And then Compassion is uh, is starting a small group and and trying to teach classes on government to uh, your local. (laughs) local
0: No, you joke, but it's true. (laughs) I I mean, so to your point of, you know, if you're a citizen, you should do more. I mean, at the end of the day, like you went to school for political science. No, I didn't go to college at all. I opened a small business. I have a family. I looked at the round of the world and exactly as John was saying, I no. saw a lot of problems and I said, "Okay, how can I get involved?" And then no. when I got involved, I figured out what am I good at and let me do the thing that I'm good at. That, which is why that the local party drives me nuts because they're like, "Jeff, why don't you run for school board?" That's not what my specialty is. I'm not going to run for school board. I'm going to I'm going to do the thing that I bring value to, right, you no. know? And that's what you should want me to do the thing that I bring value. You should like like I don't want Tyler doing math you know, you don't want Jeff running for school board, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's
2: right. Um, oh, I had a thought and it floated away. Oh, but no, I mean, so I have a PhD in political science. That is not, me. we live in a democratic republic. You do not have to have a PhD in political science to be involved in your community, to be involved in politics. Most people who are have a PhD in political science are not that involved in the community and politics and i dare i say should not be in charge of the community or of politics nice people but you know all of them are well suited to um, to leading a community uh they should give back but everybody should be giving back this is the goes to the equal, egalitarian thing there is no qualification you have to have to do um to be involved there are you know. Maybe you give back by being part of the country's nuclear program. I would like you to have some education and expertise in nuclear science. Um, this is, this is that is a rare and particular case. Um, most things are not like that,
0: yeah. and well, I mean, and it's your responsibility as a citizen that whatever you get involved in to be educated in, right? Yeah. I mean, you know you can you can kind of learn anything and and, like you said, know what you're good at, be okay with knowing what you're not good at, right? Be okay. Be like, you know what? I'm not the the guy for math. I'm okay with that, you know? And that way you don't put yourself in a position where you're working at a nuclear plantation or not a plantation, (laughs) a nuclear site with, with, you know, no experience.
2: I'll I'll give a brief plug for this. It hasn't officially launched, but the University of Pikeville is starting a, a sort of public service center with the thinking that everybody should be involved in public service and it isn't a center that's going to be built for political science majors or for um historians or anything like that but everybody should have a part in political in public service everybody should be trained in public service and in a broader sense public service is a vocation in every career it can be and by vocation i mean something you're called to do in life more than other people Um, And you can do that with any background. And so, and I think we need more things like that. They can be at universities, they can be at schools, they can be in communities, but things that really build a space for public service. Teach people, because you have to be taught. There's an interesting thing about Alexis de Tocqueville. He always calls freedom. He doesn't say we're born equal or we're born free. He says we're born equal. He He never says we're born free. There's an odd... It's an odd thing in Tocqueville. He always calls it the art of freedom, the skill of freedom. It's really something you learn how to be free. Uh, how to and for him, free, being free and being involved and being self-governing are all very close to synonymous. So it's something I, you have to learn.
0: I I agree. And I I wrote one of my articles. I wrote this year. I said that we're not born free. Like we're born into a family and we are subjugated to our parents. You know yeah. and. And so, and I was talking to my son today, He, they were outside with, you know, the neighbors, there were three neighbors and then my twins and one of my daughters kept on coming inside. And this is the second day in a row where she doesn't feel like she's included and she can't be part of the group. And I go outside and I said, look, Oliver, so we talked about this yesterday. You're the leader of the group, which means you have the most freedom here. But yep. as leader of the group, you have an extra responsibility and that is to keep your group together. If you can't keep your group together, then you don't get to have a group. I don't let your friends come over here. You guys can come inside. Your brother and your sisters can go do their thing. You can go do your thing. And now you don't have a group anymore. And that's that's what freedom is. Freedom is responsibility. You know, it's holding the group together. You know, so you're not killing each other. <laughs> you're okay. not running away and fighting and being di- divided against.
2: That's right. Um... And it's a difficult sort of thing to learn how to do and it's good you're teaching our son how to do it (laughs) well and that's the thing
0: is it has to be taught
2: well yeah and a family is a good place to learn it and not uh i mean i have no children of my own um so i I shouldn't be criticized but it's it's evident that not all parents teach their children how to be free or how to be leaders Um, i don't think that's a contentious thing to say about parents um, no, and not at really, all. No, no, no. They really should be teaching their kids those things.
0: Yes, I. And as another story, to just today alone, I my twins are seven, and I said, um, Vanessa served an extra service at church, and I said, Oliver, I said, I want you to take care of the dishes. I've got some work I got to do in the office. I said, but I want you to have your sisters dry the dishes for you, and they can put the dishes away. You wash the dishes, and he he comes to the office after he's done, and he says, Hey, I'm done. I said, and I noticed that his sisters went upstairs like halfway through. And I said, did your sisters help you? And he goes, no, they wouldn't stay in the room blah, 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 blah. And I said, son, you are both the follower and the leader here. You're following my instructions, which was to get your sisters to help you do the dishes. I did not tell you to do the dishes. I want you to be able to lead them in getting these things done. That's a lesson for you just as it is for a lesson for them. And, yep. and that's, you know... I, Every person kind of needs to be instilled with this because you're going to go into work. You're going to have a situation in society, maybe at some point where you need to pull people together to vote, you know, like you need to be able to like lead people in a direction to like get things done.
2: That's right.
1: So one of the things you talked about, and we just kind of piggybacking on like teaching kids is the need for a liberal arts education. And you kind of list out history, literature, mathematics, science, philosophy, or religion, are there specific things in there? I mean, <clears throat> I mean, like you were just saying, like you're bad at math. Um, so, you know, do we need to learn, you know, not everyone needs to learn discrete calculus, but what do you mean? Like, what do you mean in, for mathematics? But, but really, I think more like the history, the literature, the philosophy, um, religion yeah. in sort of the sense of teaching virtue, like, yeah. you know, what are those things like where the, where are the kid's going to get them from, especially if the public school system isn't going to provide it, um, you know, Science. what grades do you think? And then just kind of like how,
2: I mean, I do think it ever stops. Uh, a good mm-hmm. liberal arts education never ends. Um, something that should start and should keep going and, until you die. Um, it begins when you're a kid. It begins in the family. Um, because when I think of the liberal arts. I think of um, liberal. The word liberal comes from the Latin libertas. It means to be free. Um, and so a liberal arts education is an education in how to be free. And um, freedom, I, I agree with Tugville. Freedom means being able to govern yourself. It doesn't just mean that nobody's, doesn't mean people aren't telling you what to do. It means you're actually capable of, of self thought, self governing. Um, and all sorts of things. I'm, I list academic subjects, and that's part of it. And all of them have their contribution. Math, loath as I am to admit it, teaches you how to think more reasonably. um realistically we're not all going to be good at all academic subjects but they're all important we should be learning all of them um your parents teaching right from wrong is an important part of this um but when i say liberal arts education in the article i do mean the more academic side of it making sure that this is something that is offered in schools it's offered in universities Um, it's really important it should be offered in schools um and homeschooling as well. I mean, however your ki- however, kids are big educated. Um, there's a big push right now to make um, by a number of activists who I really admire to make higher education oriented more towards the liberal arts. And I teach in a liberal arts college and I think that's great. Um, I think everybody should be well-versed in the liberal arts, but not everybody goes to college. Not everybody needs to go to college. Not everybody should go to college. But everybody does go to school of some kind, everybody should go to a school of some kind, and I think it's important that they get the liberal arts education there, regardless of whether they go to college, and that's where it's most not happening. Um, high school literature is very good sometimes, it's very bad sometimes, but it should always be good, you should always be getting a robust education in these things, and so solving the education crisis in America, it's incredibly complex, I don't go into how I think it should be solved in that article but. Solving it is a kind of, I think, um, an important step towards building a virtuous society because we are what we understand, um, to paraphrase um, a favorite thinker of mine. Um, and a lot of our kids don't understand all that much anymore.
0: Well, and as you know, I, as I mentioned, my sons are seven. I spend a lot of time, I spend time in the classroom. I won't classify a lot, but I try to be there as much as I can. And the last day that i was in the classroom they were teaching the kids about taxes and voting
1: mm-hmm. and
0: these, these are seven-year-olds and you know the assignment was basically to draw something that gets taxed or that taxes pay for yeah. uh, and, and they went over the things that taxes get paid for but like the kids have no idea what they're doing like they have no oh. clue they don't they don't know how to read and write completely yet Yeah. You know, like i was helping yeah. them in the classroom they're they're just now forming sentences, and we're trying to get them to understand these complex issues that should be, you know, used later. But that goes to my point about the education system and being flawed. And yeah. kind of like you were talking about the the church. The education system has been politicized. yeah, you know? and so that is a problem. We're not focused on actual education. We're focused on making sure the next voter knows what I want them to know. and yeah. and and that starts too early. Um, and i I agree with you. the 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 liberal arts needs to be a focus point, And that should be during the you know, k through five year you know, and then into, you know, I, like I tell John, is like reading and writing and me- arithmetic in um elementary school, and then philosophy and um religion and other things in middle school and then at that point you can kind of just do whatever you want when you get to high school like high school is now college age like we just don't give kids enough opportunity we don't give them a chance we're not giving them the right foundation there's a lot of issues that go into this
2: right this is gets to a bigger problem i think it's so most people say um, education has become too political. And I agree in some cases it has, but I think the bigger problem is education has become too bureaucratized. Oh, yes. Too instrumental. Um, I think there's really two big ways to understand education. And the first is technical education. And that has to be a part of it. I I don't, I've written about this. I don't deny that people should be trained in skills they can use in the real world. Um, and But the alternative is a liberal arts education where you're taught, how to be human, how to be a free, self-governing individual. And we don't do that very much at all. The whole emphasis in education is on what skills am I imparting? Um, and to be fair, actually, freedom and self-governing is a sort of skill. We just don't think of it as one of the skills we're teaching. Um, maybe that's the way you can sell it to the uh, to, to the, the bureaucrats. but. Um, but we, we, there's this emphasis and so we're teaching seven-year-olds things that seven-year-olds have no business learning uh, we're trying to teach eighth graders calculus which most people don't have any business needing to know um, and nobody's being taught um, literature or ancient history or anything like or art or music because those things don't have any obvious value um, in the career world
1: that's right. No, they'd rather teach like coding or something, and they, you know,
2: yeah. Which of course is about to not be as big a job because of AI and all these. <laughs> the, Michael Michael Oakeshott, um, a favorite political philosopher of mine, has a great essay on this. This is the problem. It's the biggest problem with only providing a technical education is the techniques become outdated as time goes on, and so you're preparing people for something that will not, perhaps even last their lifetime. Um, he said, you're training them in a skill that could be irrelevant in 30 years. He said, isn't it better to train them in something that will always be useful and let them pick up the skills that they need as they need them? Um, and like I said, I think the skill should be part of education, but it just it cannot be the whole thing. And that's what we've become, even at the college level, which um, is a big thing. But humanities are dying in the colleges um, because people don't see the purpose in them.
1: Well, it's a weird incentive structure too. like, if you go to college, the expectation is that you're going to spend a lot of money, generally, uh, you know, unless you go to a cheaper in state school. yeah. And then you kind of there's a pressure like, oh, I got to make some money off this to pay it off. Otherwise, I'm stuck in a job where I didn't even need a college degree. And then, you know, that's an even bigger waste.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the price of college is a whole other thing that mm-hmm. is terrible because I, I always tell people I think I think college really has a purpose. Even if you don't plan on doing anything that requires a college degree, but it costs so much money that that it's a, it's a hard sell. And I'm not going to tell anybody to bury themselves in debt for something that they're not actually going to use in their career. Um, so that's another whole other problem, I think, though, is that college is a good time to be kind of a half-adult not a real person, <laughs> not quite a real grown-up. <laughs> sort of grown um, it's a good time to kind of get your feet wet practicing at being a grown-up. It's a good time to just spend time thinking. Never, ever again in your life are you going to just have time to think. Wow. Um, and But the expense of college has made that impossible, even for a lot of students who have to work a job and things like that to make their way through college. And they should if that's what it takes and that's what they want to do, but it's a sort of shame that they can't just be thinkers for four years. I think that's a wonderful thing to get to be.
0: I would love four years to just think. Like I, I, I
2: would really lucky. Like, yeah, I had a full-ride scholarship to undergrad, so that's what I got to do. And then when you're a PhD student, you really do get to do that because it's paid for, and you have some teaching and stuff like that, but PhD students who complain about how bad it is have really never worked a real job. Um <laughs> It, it it's, a, it's a it's a wonderful thing, and I wish everybody could do that because um, I do think it's great. Um, and the shame is that the students don't think that's not how they think of college. It's not how they're
0: incentivized to think of college. Well, they that's have the to pay to off the debt. They, to be. they have to pay off the debt, so they're thinking ahead.
2: Yeah, and I don't blame <laughs> you. Know, if you're going to pay, oh, well, I won't say where I work because you know I think it costs thirty, forty thousand something a year to go here. Um, you know if're if you're, if you are paying that, I don't blame you for having bigger things on your mind. <laughs>
1: uh, but that's why it's so important to move the liberal arts further down into like yeah, high absolutely. school yes. you know, that's like... why it's
2: important to move it further down. When people there's, I think a big push for children to be involved in a million things in high school and even now middle and elementary school. Mm-hmm. And I think let them be kids. let them yeah. let them have school. let them enjoy some just the freedom to to think and experiment and to have fun. Um to a point. I mean they need to learn other things too, but uh yeah. I, just, I agree.
0: I mean you, grow up, you don't get to do
2: that anymore.
0: It, and you know, we I John John and I both have a lot of kids, so it's like hard to be like hardcore into like one thing as a parent because you just have yeah. so many schedules to manage. But well, like, yeah. a, a, most families have, you know, one or two kids and then they devote a massive amount of time to those children and their oh. activities and I think two things can happen from this scenario. One, you box out your child from learning other things, right? Because you monetize their time with the thing that they may like now, but may not like later, or you don't even know what they like because you didn't give them the opportunity. They just like this really, this one thing. And then you went hardcore into it instead of like opening up the door for them to like step into other things. And then there's the other aspect of where they just, they get over specialized, you know, and like now you're really great at this thing and you think that this is now life and then you get into the real world and you go, wait a second, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> yeah. well, this
2: all of society is so specialized now. And I think that's a mistake because I don't think we're built that way. No, We have things we're better and worse at. Well, that's true. And we should play to our strengths, but that's not the same thing that's saying, oh, I'm going to do this one thing all my life. I'm a big fan, Um, not of career centers or career preparation, but of uh, what I call vocations, but I'm using it in an old theological biblical sense, where you're called to something, but you're not called to be a car mechanic. You're called maybe to fix things or something like this. Um, you're called to be a public servant. It's it's a very broad category in which a lot of different things can be included. And I think that's more how we should be thinking of playing to our strengths. Um, I don't think that's how we raise, that's how we're raising the new generation. Um, and I think it becomes problematic because they get to college or they get to the career world and then they realize, oh, I don't know, uh, I have this hyper specific thing, and or I don't know what my hyper specific thing is, but I have to have one. And they feel so lost, and they really don't need to have a hyper specific thing, and they ought not be feeling that way. Yeah, or and they... I don't know what to tell my students when they come and they're like, I don't know this one thing I need to do for the rest of my life, and I was like, God, who does? <laughs>
0: <laughs> who does? Don't. Worry about it. <laughs> well, the the thing I worry about with this generation's of kids that is so hyper focused in whatever their activity is is I wonder what they're going to be like when they're twenty five and they've been working so hard at their you know yeah you know their hobby now what how hard are they what energy did they have left for for their job you know well, in the future I mean, I,
2: based on my students who are now. You know, a lot of them 18, 19, 20 entering the real world for the first time. And they're great kids. They want to learn. They're smart. But they're completely burned out, I think, in a in a in a deeper sense. Um, they're cynical, they're anxious, they feel lost. And I think it's a product of a couple of things. We we don't give young people enough meaning in their lives anymore, but it's the other thing is I think we we burn them out on meaning uh, or on, um, on work and sort of thing. And we leave a kind of anxious, lost generation. And I don't know how, how that will turn out politically
0: or spiritually or any number of things. It won't be good. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> you, could, you could look at it two ways. You could say it won't be good unless there is something there to give them meaning. Oh to, yeah, if yeah. they feel lost, you know, like look at, you know, there's in history there's regular religious awakenings, right? Yeah. And that is where a large group of people become, you know, yeah. lost and and searching for meaning. And I think that we might, you know, I've seen a lot of people, you know, move towards actual faith, you know, yeah. not just big religion, big church, but actual faith yeah. over the last year, uh, including myself and you know, I I think that, you know, Maybe there's a little bit of hope there. You know, yeah. society has a way of working itself out. I, I think so too. Um, I, would, I, I used to. I think in
2: some ways the the rural religious. Well, no. Let me put it this way. I, I think in some ways the real secret to politics is that there will be ups and downs. Civilizations go up, they go down, and the real art is helping people maintain their dignity and happiness and human flourishing in the ups and in the downs. Um, And we're maybe in a down right now. I think it's kind of hard to know in the moment, actually. I think maybe in 80 years, we'll look back and say, boy, those were the golden years. I doubt it. You You really might. Who knows?
0: (laughs) I I think we are very clearly in a down, you know, and that's okay. You know, that just means there's more opportunity in, in front of us.
2: Yeah, well yeah that's right but I say I think it is hard to know for sure um D- David McCullough the historian has a story I love he said his dad was a big big Republican and it was the um election where it was Harry Truman versus Thomas Dewey and he went to bed and he came downstairs and his dad said and he it was the night of the election it was the morning after the election David McCullough asked his dad he said um who won and his dad said Truman as if the world was ending. And he was really just dispirited. And he said, 40 or years later, his dad was griping about how the world was going to hell in a handbasket, everything was awful. He said, you know what we need? Harry Truman, he'd get this done. And I was like, there's a a sense of, I think, in which we always think things are going to hell in the moment in which we're living. Um, But sometimes they really are,
0: so. um. (laughs) Well, I mean, yes. I, I think what I tell people is like, you know that old Ronald Reagan quote is like, you, you know, freedom is I think liberty or freedom is only one generation away. Okay. I think that that is inherently true. And I think that there is it there are always people inside of every single generation working to preserve it. And that is the key, like we talked about before. If you want to be free, you have to earn it. You have to work for it. And if you okay. want to have rights, you need to take care of your responsibilities. That's how we we become and maintain being a, a self governing uh, republic. Um, but Tyler, we're like, we're we're over time here. It's right. it, I could I could we could talk all day. Um, I do want to just a couple questions before yeah. before you go, or at least one more before you get out of here. Um, so you talk about. In the article, you know, Saving the Republican, you kind of walk through uh, democracy, you walk through republicanism, you even kind of walk through the shift from republicanism to democracy, oh. the, the, you know, Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams, all of those people. And so what I want to know is the republic is suffering. You know, there is struggles. You kind of – a couple ways that we can repair it, but what do you think is like the the big – disease of it you know um you know plutarch said the uh, greatest of all diseases of republic is the difference between rich and poor and i'm butchering that quote but like what what do you think our our issue is
2: yeah i think it's the issue that always plagues um bad moments in history which is selfishness um people who don't and sometimes good people in many ways um but people who don't think about the common good the public good first and foremost who think really in terms only of what's good for them who don't contribute um to their community and society in a new way T- to me that's the great disease of our time it's a lack of virtue in that sense the deepest and I think in a lot of ways, self-governing and virtue come down to um recognizing that you're just one part of a bigger equation. Um, we've talked about compassion, we've talked about duty to other people, and I think that's what it comes down to, sort of a diminishment of the self. Um and that's what we're missing. We live in a very individualistic and a very selfish society. And I think that's our big disease. And when you look at um, the extremist movements that I think are tearing the country apart, I think that's a lot of their roots um, come down to that. Um, I think, uh, and even if it's not the activists themselves who are being selfish, sometimes the leaders are, and sometimes they're being, brought about by selfish people, but I think it's that this sort of inability to to think of others first. That's the real disease of the republic divide between rich and poor. it's always been there. it It makes things worse. but dare, i I loathe to disagree with Plutarch as I am. I always think the bigger <laughs> problem
0: is selfishness. Well, I think selfishness it it creates a bigger gap between rich and poor. and I yeah, think well, that it. is what plutarch is referring to
2: yeah it makes those things which are always there the difference between the rich and the poor the difference between the rural and the urban the difference between the educated and the less educated it makes these divisions which are always fraught and always a little painful it makes them so much worse it makes them so much more painful because the rich aren't caring about the poor and the poor aren't caring about the rich and the rural people aren't caring about the city people and the city people aren't caring about the rural people. And so selfishness makes these problems, these divisions a million times worse, it makes them a lot harder to fix, makes it harder to bring people together and actually solve the problems that the society is confronting.
0: So I I agree with you in a lot of what you say as far as like the disease, except so, like, the way I like to look at it, and, and John and I talk about it, parenting shapes the child, right? If you have a selfish, you know, uh, irresponsible child, yeah. maybe there was a parenting issue going on. And, and yeah. you know, you lo- not blaming all the parents, society plays a role as well. But if you want to look at it from okay, if the citizens aren't doing that, if they're they're entitled with their rights, they're not doing their responsibilities, yeah. they're a little bit selfish, they're not, they don't know, you know, what's going on maybe it's the structure of the government the government shapes its citizens right mm. and so i think there's there's some significant things yeah. you know from the founding that have gone off one the executive branch and the judiciary branch have expanded its powers while congress has ceded its powers yeah. right and then you have this issue of slavery in the in the early part of the founding and then through the antebellum period that really divided people among morality, right. and the aspects of Republican government got lost along the way. It became yeah. about doing what's right as opposed to doing it right, which means that we shifted towards like this majority style power. you know yeah. it was the simple majority that brought in uh, Texas to the Union to help expand slavery. It was you know, Lincoln and you know you know just using raw executive power to kind of you know suppress the 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 treasonous behavior of the South, if you will. Um, And then, you know, the big fundamental flaw that, like, nobody really talks about is the 14th Amendment. And I know that that, you know, may be unpopular because of what it is, but the Due Process Clause has, it created rights for corporations. And it was Mm -hmm. not intended that way at all. It was all about, you know, creating rights for citizens. And you have, Roscoe Conklin, who argued for the in the Santa Clara South Pacific Supreme Court case, that makes the argument that the due process clause was supposed to be to consider a corporation as a person because it had been litigated in the court almost 20 times Mm -hmm. prior to this, and over 20 times the Supreme Court had said, no, a corporation is not a person, it is not a citizen, Um, Mm -hmm. and then in a header in a Supreme Court case that with no discussion, no debate, All of a sudden, the Supreme Court justices determined that a corporation was a person. And then from there, you just see this massive expansion through the Gilded Age of business and corporations. And what happened is the corporation had more rights than the states, right? So now that idea of governing yourself, being able to write your own rules, it's kind of taken away from people. They now have less rights at home because they have this... Other thing they're having to fight about from other states or whatnot, the corporations that come in, and so the government just got off balanced, significantly off balanced, you know. And now okay. you're you're now fast forward, it's 2023. You've had corporations now have rights, corporations now have freedom of speech, corporations now pay for the elections. They are the ones that are in charge of getting people to office, and individual citizens, yeah. We don't want to take our responsibility seriously because we don't have enough power. And maybe we're a little entitled and selfish because corporations work towards, I don't know, people's conveniences, you know, making things easier for them as opposed to making things right, if you will. Um, but I'm kind of rambling here. I apologize. <laughs> no, you're fine. I I agree with a lot of what you say, but I suppose where John Quincy
2: Adams and I – And I would start to depart, I think, in important ways from the Federalist Hamilton and Madison and Jay, is that I think none of those things happen bad in government without there being a problem in society first, too. Not to say that politics is simply downstream from culture, but that they feed off one another. Problems don't emerge in government unless there's already problems in society and problems with the culture. Um, Likewise though um problems maybe don't always emerge in society and culture unless there's a problem in government so there's a kind of give and take here i think um so that's i suppose the root of our disagreement i don't think we have time to to figure it out <laughs> <laughs> right, yes. no, no, no,
0: no. <laughs> i mean I, I i understand it's like a chicken and the egg type thing right yeah I mean,
2: well and it's, you know- this is in political science and history, this is always the debate, which is downstream from, you know, is culture downstream of politics? Is politics downstream from culture? Um, is it a balance? What's the balance? It's always a big debate.
1: John,
0: you want to jump in at all? No?
1: No, it's, it is debate. I mean...
0: <laughs> I mean, I just think, I, I think that if you, you know, talking to regular citizens, you know, that... Um, you know, you meet in coffee shops and whatever, they feel powerless. They feel like they don't have a chance. And it's not necessarily because of the government per se. It could be because of business as well. You know, there aren't enough opportunities to start a business. There aren't enough opportunities for education. There's just not enough opportunities for a lot of things. And that's because corporations in general are about consolidating power. And, you know, and they, they've you know, you kind of talked about that with, at the beginning with the party system and not right. being able to get on the ballot because the Republican and Democratic parties, in a lot of ways, they're corporations. They've consolidated yeah. power. And and what what do corporations do once they've consolidated power? They write regulation to keep others out and they squash opportunity. And that yeah. goes against republicanism, it goes against capitalism. And I think that you know society needs a fair set of abstract rules to be free and we have an overbearing set of rules right now because of because of this off-balance structure that we've we've created
2: well i have another article i wrote that i should send you which is about this actually now that i'm thinking about it but (laughs) (laughs) it's about the imbalance of corporate power and that kind of thing um how it damages self-government which i agree is a serious problem and something I do think that the extreme left and the extreme right are right to diagnose as a problem. I just don't always like their solutions very much.
0: Well, and that's what happens with extremism is it becomes it's like we don't like this thing. So this thing needs to get away. And and that is the opposite of my solution to these problems. My solution to these problems in a lot of ways is just write better, clearer rules. So like we need to write a constitutional amendment defining what a citizen is, what a citizen is like. That's the big issue. We, we need to do that. And we don't need less corporations. We need more corporations. We need, you know, s- smaller corporations, multitude of them. Um, and then I think a, a layered party system would be really good, too, where you have, you know, a presidential party system. Um, yeah. a, a, see, I want to put the Senate back to the state, whatever, but then a congressional party system and then like a local party system as well underneath of that in states and they should be separated from each other so they're not concentrating the powers of the government together right all makes sense to me
1: yeah yeah i mean part of the breakdown and uh having on these rules is because you have a less virtuous society so you kind of you know you're filling a void of virtue with structures and then that's where they kind of get uh they start to take over our lives and you do lose freedom that way
2: yeah, but this is, I love, and this is uh, the argument that we need an Augustus Caesar. And what Caesar did, you know, Roman society had imploded. There was no virtue. There was no structure. And he imposed structure on society. And it did look a lot better. But my argument has always been that it wasn't actually better. You had just kind of structured the way people live. But the content you know, what was going on in their souls and in their brains was not actually being improved um, by the content. you actually have to have some form of self-government, some form of republican government, for a lot of that to really happen, um, which is why I have a bust of Cicero in my office and not a bust of uh, any of the Caesars.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's why Hamilton is low on my founder list, is because his his guy that he looked up was up to was Caesar. So I have no doubt of where he was going to go with this country had he gained more power.
2: <laughs> oh no, and to be fair, I mean to be fair to Jeff, I mean to Hamilton, it is. Jefferson also once said, you know, what was Cicero really defending? A broken down, old thing, with no no virtue and no functioning institutions, like, really anything that noble? Jefferson doesn't quite say, well, and I side with Julius Caesar, but there's this, he's not sure that there is, in his old age, he's like not convinced there's a lot of nobility in trying to save the dying thing. Um, And a lot of people in history who I really like have admired Caesar for what they take to be his genuine care for the people of Rome and his attempt to help them. And maybe he did care about the people of Rome and maybe he was trying to help them, but um, but I really like the old adage, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. (laughs)
0: Well that's uh that's a great place to end, Tyler. I uh, I really appreciate you joining us uh, as always. We not. could talk for hours. Uh, your article is fantastic. The publication, uh, the fall issue just came out. You can where can where can people find it?
2: Uh the vitalcenter um dot com. I think that's it actually. It's just the vitalcenter dot com. <laughs> I should know that. Um, and then you can have a link, there's a link to the Paul issue, and there's all sorts of wonderful articles on um, the roots of liberalism and Catholic theology, on the French Revolution on January 6th, and on saving the republic.
0: Absolutely. I highly encourage you, if you are a citizen and you want to be more involved, this is a good place to start. Just start reading, you know, about history and politics and you know, uh, thought about those things, and uh, I love, I love what you guys have built there. Um, I think the art, the the issue is just absolutely fantastic. I was at the bar picking up beer before he, I came here, and I was telling people about it. Um, I live in, I live in Washington D.C. I meet people that you know work, you know, on right, Capitol yeah. Hill all the time. They love reading this type of stuff. So um, I've been telling everyone it's a good place. We need more places with civil debate. Um, So I absolutely love it, and I really appreciate you joining us on the show. And thank you guys for having me. All right. Thank you so much to our guest today, Tyler Sick. Um, Go check out his article at thevitalcenter.com. You can follow him on Twitter. Um, And as always, peace and love.